Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Thanks, thanks very much, Hugh. Uh, yeah, I've not done one of these talks before either, but I've looked at some of the films. They do look vastly entertaining, so I hope this one will be as well. The um, reason we're doing this one, uh, Archispeak, uh, Time to Kill the Jargon, um, is because I, I regret to say that it has come to my attention that apparently some architects occasionally talk total bollocks. And I'm wondering how can this be? Uh, is this the case? Uh, why do they do it? If so, can we help them in any way? And to what extent does this differ from um, the closely related um, other um, jargon of um, PR waffle, for instance, or developer speak, or you know, academia speak? Uh, now, we all have our private languages. Uh, I'm a magazine editor. Magazine editing has its private language. But, you know, I don't go around the place talking about DPSs and stand firsts and pull quotes and things in everyday conversation because that would just be silly. Um, why do architects do that? If they do, perhaps they don't. If they do, is there a reason for it? So our speakers this evening, uh, Maria... Fajenko, course master at the AA, so she knows all about the academia side of things. Uh, Holly Lewis, um, co-founding partner of We Made That. Uh, Paddy isn't here, but uh, Pat's Patrick Lynch, but we've uh, got Stephen standing in for him. Uh, and we've got Ike EJ, uh, the architecture critic of Assemble Media Group, which if you've not heard of Assemble Media Group, um, that's effectively uh, things like Building and BD, who are very encouragingly now operating as an independent organisation, uh, as opposed to being part of um, a strange exhibition uh, purveyor. So I'm going to start and I am going to come to Ike first um, as someone who uh, I, suspect, I suspect like me has suffered somewhat from um, the words of architects and um, Ike, um, what, what can we do about it? Um, hello everybody, good evening. Um, as he said, um, I'm Ike EJ. I straddle both fences, actually. So I'm an architecture critic, but I'm an architect too. So I can take double the blame for the fact that some architects can be known to not speak clearly. Um, um, why do we do it? Well, the first, I think the first most important thing to say is that architects do do it. Um, some have said that oh, architects don't speak in a different language. To, um, I think it's quite clear if anybody, architect or not, has maybe had even a kind of limited engagement with the way architects speak, present themselves in maybe design and access statements, um, presentations to clients possibly. There is, um, language is sometimes hijacked, in my opinion, to a negative degree to almost make it seem as if architects talk in a completely different language to everybody else. Um, 
Yeah, I suppose I'll start with that. I've got various, well, I've got various ideas as to why that might happen, but I'll leave that for later on in the evening. So, thanks. Next up, I think, come on, Maria, it's your turn on the, uh, on the um, academic side, so off you go. Hello. Um, yes, I agree. Architects can be sometimes difficult to understand, but just to start the debate, I would say, coming from obviously very academic side of things, in defense of, uh, in defense of the jargon, perhaps, um, I think it's important to distinguish what we, what we actually critiquing, what we're debating. If we're talking about architecture as an academic discipline, there has to be a degree of expertise that we hold that adds to not just the building practice but also cultural activity. And if that cultural activity requires a certain intellectual depth, with that comes complexity, with that comes sometimes complex language. So I would like to pose that sometimes degree of complexity on the inside is justified. Now that does not justify the fact that without adequate translation, those ideas would then be broadcast outside in the exact same language that we use in the design studio to brainstorm ideas and transpose between culture and space. So those are two separate problems for me. Our language we use to frame our ideas and channel our imagination and relate architecture as a broader cultural enterprise and the way we address different audiences. So to me, there are separate problems. Um, okay. Holly, I'm coming to you now because I'm under the strong impression that uh, engaging with the public is one of the key things which you do. And does this raise its head in your everyday work? Uh, it, it definitely does. Um, so we made that. We spend a lot of time talking to normal, normal people, um, which helps. <laughs> not, not architects. Um, but I thought I might start with a bit of venting, actually, because I've been thinking about this for a week, a couple of days. Um, and in that time... <laughs> A couple of things have come up. So the word palimpsest, uh, I would like to have vetoed or forbidden in all architectural writing because nobody knows what it means. Spatiality, I still don't understand what that actually is. Uh, I understand what a space is, but like people say spatiality and I actually glaze over. Um, I'm going to do it. I hope that nobody in this room wrote this, but I did find something on a website that says that they'd made a pluralist space from which a dialogical encounter can be facilitated, which I think means we made a nice place for a chat. <laughs> so we definitely do it. But then I also know that in our office, so over maybe probably in 24 hours, 48 hours maybe, you would hear in our office, PQQ, ITT, EOI, SPG, SIL with a C, SIL with an S, OAPF, DPF, Pre-app, WBP, PPC, like blah, 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 it goes on and on. And we definitely do that. But we know what we're talking about. So I think in the office, that's probably not a problem. But, I mean, I, your point, Maria, I think is well made. And I think I have no problem with complex language. And I like language. Like, it's fun to, to play with it. My problem with complex language is, I think there are two caveats to it. One is, is your idea complicated? And if it is, then fine, or maybe fine. If it's not, then why are you bothering? And I think architects definitely suffer from trying to make an idea which is just, I've chosen it because I like it, to try and make it sound 
uh, like you can't argue with it, or it's this incredibly clever idea, which is just, I want to make this bit darker and that bit lighter, or something. Then second, if your idea is complicated, then is your audience equipped to understand the language that you're going to use? And if not, then you still have to use different language, even if your ideas are complicated. And it's mostly possible to explain most of a complicated idea with some s more straightforward language, I think. So, yeah, that was, that's what I've been thinking about coming here. Stephen, are you going to speak up for Archispeak? Well, I'll start off with something that I've been talking to Lee Mallet about. And um, Lee couldn't be here tonight. But one of the things he was hoping that might come up was about, um, about the, the archi speaking itself. It's like all professions, architecture and architects big themselves up. Kind of what, I guess, Maria and, and, and Holly are saying, there's a kind of separate issue where architects are using the archi speak within their own um, realm. When it take, goes to the everyday, maybe there's problems. So they're using a, their own professional shorthand rather than a longhand. And um, Lee was of the view that maybe that's um, about power, about using language or using difficult language as a way to sort of show off, um, or not show off, but a way to um, um, control or a way to sort of um, um, distance oneself from someone else and have a, a degree of um, aloofness. It's maybe a bit untouchable, where it's just kind of assumed that the knowledge is there. So, Lee was of the view that that issue of power should be kind of um, broken up a little bit. Um, I'm going to try and back it up a little bit, because I do think that, and I'm playing devil's advocate this evening in, in place of Paddy, I'm just wondering that if um, we have lots of words in many, many different professions that have an etymology that's from Greek or Latin, when I think of medicine, for example, all the words are rooted in meanings that go back, you know, thousands of years. And it makes me wonder that, you know, would you want your surgeon before your operation to talk about how he's going to cut you up with a sharp cutty thing. And architects are kind of hammered for big language, things like um, spatiality, which I would agree with. But there are, 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 are words that actually do make sense when you're actually trying to describe complex words. Things like um, taxonomy, when you're classifying different kind of groups, you know. I'm okay with that. Things like um, rhizome, when you're talking about the root of something. I'm okay with that too. Common person might not understand it, but the roots are there. And this is where I'm wanting to maybe be a little bit more clever rather than dumbing down, is to maybe architects should be using language well rather than for the purposes of power. Should we be educating the public, Stephen? Is that what you're saying? Possibly, yeah. There's, certainly, a, lot, there's, certainly, a, lot, there's a lot of them, you know. Certainly educating clients, in my view. Some clients. Um, 
Well, there's, let's come there's, there's, like, you know, you go to, you go to into a, um, as I said, you go into the, the, the back, the, the context of a hospital. You you do want to to sort of trust with what you have to put, invest your trust in what those people are doing and how they're explaining things to you. And I think architects should be capable of doing that too. Um, I'm beginning to think, uh, looking at uh, architects' websites, that this is a kind of, that it's actually cleverer than it might appear to be. Because we all play the game in the office, I'm sure other people here do as well, of who's got actually the worst website. Who talks the most nonsense on a website? It's normally sort of about two or three architects win this every year. Um, but I'm starting to think, because when you look at the architects who do this, normally this seems to me to be a filtering device whereby they are selecting their clients, they are talking like to like. You therefore usually find that those architects who are most concerned with, shall we say, art galleries, talk in a language which is very different from the kinds of architects who um, talk about housing or one-off houses. Um, my uh, problem with this is not so much that, because I can understand that. Uh, I think that certain architects would wish not to have a certain kind of client coming to them. Um, they would rather have uh, uh, the other sort. Even so, when I was looking today at a, uh, at a site, and uh, just straightforward large firm of architects, um, very successful, um, they came up with this paragraph, which is entirely comprehensible. There's nothing gibberish about it. Um, but it made me think, why would they want to say that, really? Um, what they said was, um, describing their approach, ideas are elaborated in a manner akin to art practices that engage directly with the built environment and embrace the, quotes, found space. And I'm thinking, well, I understand all of that. That's absolutely clear to me. Um, but actually, what is that really saying? What is engaging directly with a built environment? What does that mean? Are they building a building in a place where there's other buildings? Is that, is that what I'm saying? Um, embracing the found space, well, one understands the concept of found space from art practice. Uh, but I find it interesting that they are very much putting themselves in that art practice way of doing things because, guess what, this is a practice which mostly does art galleries. So that makes some sense. And if you look at the um, uh, websites of, shall we say, uh, standard commercial practices turning out um, um, commercial housing as opposed to social housing, um, then uh, you get a very different kind of language there. So as I came over here this evening... Um, I started off um, full of righteous anger against the um, extraordinary language of architects. And by the time I got here, I thought, I think they've actually been quite clever, some of them. I don't know if anybody in this room would agree with me, and I'll throw this open to the room next. Um, are they actually using language as a filter in a way which is far more sophisticated than we have previously understood? Anybody want to pitch in on that? A microphone coming to you. Thank you, Hugh. I, I, I'm, I'm Peter Murray, and uh, I'm amazed. Hugh used to work in a magazine I worked for a long time ago. Then he went to work for the Sunday Times. I'm amazed you're so tolerant, Hugh, really. Um, I would have thought these Sunday Times sub-editors would have drilled into you uh, the real meaning of words and not the sort of laziness that you find. I'm, I mean, I think it's interesting that uh, we should have a defender from the Architectural Association, which is the apogee of uh, misunderstanding, really, and sloppy language that uh, you only have to go to the dip show to see that most of it means absolutely nothing at all. It's sort of emperor's clothes. 
And I think this comes from a number of things. First of all, Cedric Price, who thought that if it wasn't difficult, it wasn't worth trying to understand it. Uh, and uh, Buckminster Fuller, who actually invented a whole language of his own, which was incomprehensible to most people, um, uh, except Martin Pawley. Um, uh, so I actually think that uh, uh, you know, this is not a matter of whether you can use words like uh, DPC in public. It is actually about a laziness in terms of applying your language to the audience that you're speaking to. So I think, uh, the thing, what you say about power, that may be the case, but actually a lot of what architects do is speaking to ordinary people. Um, consultation has to be a key part of architecture. Dealing with clients is a key part of what architects do. And uh, speaking the um, uh, language that uh, they don't understand or actually think is pompous and idiotic and is indeed sloppy, I think is no way to do that. So I, I, I think you're right. And um, as somebody who sits on a million and one design panels, I've seen loads of architects presenting their schemes. But this point, I think, of where it's problematic is not where if you're using difficult language to talk to a panel or to talk to your clients, but it's because everything that we're building affects everybody else in the city. And the number of consultations that you go to where it says something about a landmark building and there's just a pink square in the corner of the block. And I know that that means there's going to be a tower there. And nobody else knows that. And nobody says that. That's sneaky and deceptive. And that's where the language is problematic, I think, is where we are using the language to pull the wool over the eyes of people that are supposed to be able to give some useful feedback on our scheme. There is something about the level of fluency with the built environment that most people have, which is lower than I think would be ideal. But we could still have useful conversations if we said, here's a tower. How about a tower here? We are definitely going to build a lot of homes on this site. Not kind of fudging it. And I think that happens a lot. And that, I think, is where this issue becomes much sharper than just our architects talking clearly to each other. I think it's really interesting um, the way it's developing because while I would not hope uh, single-handedly to defend the academic environment, <laughs> architectural association specifically, I would not presume, but I think what's interesting in, in the questions being raised, um, the importance of context. So I think for the, there's been several settings evoked here, the meeting with a client, the press release, the design panel, the presentation to our city authority. Those are very different contexts in which we formulate our arguments. Academia, for example, a very unique context. So there's, I don't see any need to alter the way academics transmit ideas to other academics. But I think what is primarily being questioned here is that the way these academics are then able to turn on to a different, turn to a different audience, put a different hat on, and utilize a very different language. But with regards to the academic issue, um, I think I'd like just to say a few words in defense of architecture as a kind of a long-term pursuit. Um, and I think a lot of blame here lies not with architecture but other disciplines. Let me try to explain. I think that if I read a book by Le Corbusier or Aldo Rossi, I'm not confused at all. And those are very sophisticated thinkers about cities, architecture, uh, design objects. When I did confused, 
is when I arrive as a Russian Futimas bred sort of type student at Princeton University in America, and I'm being like asked to dis discuss deterritorialization, I'm utterly confused. Um, I don't understand what big toe has to do with design at all. Um, uh, and I suffer a minor nervous breakdown from the, the academic language. And many, many years later, when I become an architectural teacher, I realize that architects are not to blame. It's other fields, primarily philosophy, sometimes statistics, sometimes political science. Fields we don't understand very well. We get seduced with our degree of insecurity. We somehow think they're better than us because their words are bigger. And we steal the words. We don't understand their meanings. We jumble into a salad of sexy words. English is not my native language. I don't speak it very well. But even I had to learn to say things like digitalization if I had to pass Princeton University master's program. I think that's a very different issue. And the second point I'd like to make in defense of architectural language, and maybe theoretical language, there is a place for abstract thinking and ideas that exceed literal description of objects. And I would like to say that even when we make some very minor incision in a city, where we propose to do some very, very subtle change, we're often driven not by this moves over there, and when we make a road, and then we open this door, and you can go here from there. We're driven by something bigger. And if we turn off that level of thinking, and whether we use French words, Russian words, other words, if we don't use those big words that help us think those big ideas, I think we shall change ourselves. So I'd like to flag these two, let's say, evoke a correction to the problem of architectural theoretical language. That seems fine to me, um, except that how much should you keep that to yourself? How much should you keep that within the academy, as opposed to then broadcasting it abroad? At what point do you say, I'm now crossing a boundary between one kind of language and another kind of language, and we act accordingly? Anyway, Ike. Um, yeah, I think that's the point. I think it's essentially about audience. And I completely agree um, with what you said about there will be certain contexts and times where you, you do need that expansion and ambition of thought. And one way of conveying that is through language. But there's no, it's about honing how you're speaking or honing how you're communicating to the audience in question. And I think the, 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 the idea or the incursion of academia into architecture is interesting because I happen to think that I found it far easier to understand really complex ideas written by people, say, like um, Frank Lloyd Wright or even Le Corbusier or Mies van der Rohe. They're complex ideas. I was able to quite easily understand them as opposed to maybe a Bernard Tashumi or a Peter Eisenman today who just speak, I, I cry when I read a lot of what they say because I don't understand a word of it. And I think part of that, my own theory, is perhaps to do in the 1970s, perhaps the collapse of modernism. Modernism came in for a hard time. Postmodernism was ushered in. A lot of the ideas that architects had been propagating in reality, I don't know, tower blocks, big plazas, flyovers, were discredited. 
They, they weren't seen as fashionable in reality anymore, so they almost took refuge in academia, in a kind of theoretical world where they could use this kind of language to um, propose ideas which had almost to a degree been discredited in the real world. And I think that kind of hang-up is still where we are to a degree today. And there is a compulsion that almost in, ought to be taken seriously as an important architect. You have to engage in academia to be seen, in academic language, to be seen as important and competent. And I think that's something unfortunately, that has become quite divisive and separatist in how architects are perceived in wider society and how they communicate with others as well. Is part of the problem there, then, that uh, architecture is unusual in that practitioners also teach and teachers also practice, and that, therefore, the worlds bl blur and overlap in a way which they don't do in other professions, it seems to me? Well... Uh, do you want to say something about that, instead of shaking your head at me? Uh, uh, say why. Uh, no, I don't believe that's true at all. I'm a medic, and academia and everyday language does overlap. Um, I'm really interested to hear that what architecture is, is, is it something about... It's about culture and space, isn't it? Is that, that was a very succinct definition of architecture. I'd never heard anyone say anything like that. Um, so therefore, the word culture obviously means it has to have a language. Um, I, I'm always struck by the structures within architecture. So you're having on Negroni talks tonight about devising some sort of way of talking to translate ideas to the public, which you obviously believe is important because you think space is about culture and space. But <clears throat> would, obviously events like this are helpful but what, what helps you? What organisationally helps you? Is it, is it your journalists? Is it your CPD leads? And how are you going to devise what you need to do? Because it's, I just let you know that I've been involved in this and it's quite a lot of work. And it's quite a lot of um, really listening to very loud voices, as I'm sure lots of you know. Lots of your also language is determined by, as you say, these obstructions like... Um, planning and government speak and, and all of that. So, um, yeah. Could, could you, as a matter of interest, give a medical example of something which you might say as a professional, which the public, apart from a sort of a, a very specific um, Latin name for something, but how you would speak and then what you would have to then say in order for the patient, for instance, to understand it? Well, that's quite a complex question. I, don't, I, I mean, I can do that very quickly, but um, it's probably not the most important thing for your uh, discussions, which are obviously about architectural languages. But I'd say probably relevant to you is commissioning. So how you get over a commissioning idea to a patient is very complex. And you generally want to do that within a sort of using the powers that exist, like boroughs and local structures, voluntary groups, um, uh, in our case, languages. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that requires kind of systems and help. And if uh, doing it in individuals and practices, working uh, without a kind of consistent help for that, I, I just don't know how you do that. I mean, I'm... Uh, the best of my knowledge, there is um, no official assistance um, provided by uh, the RIBA, for instance, uh, to architects as to how to write in uh, plain English, other than, as you say, um, by example. 
Um, Peter made a point about, uh, didn't the Sunday Times uh, subs give you a hard time? They didn't particularly because I'm not an architect, you see. And so I never learned that jargon. But occasionally they would say, that's a bit tradey, Hugh. And that was a real put down. If they said something was tradey, then that meant that it would be spiked immediately. So uh, I, I soon learned not to be tradey. Um, anybody else want to dive in? Yeah, Rob over there. Hi, I was just um, wondering, it's quite timely that Brian Friel's translation is on at the National Theatre at the moment, which deals with the concept of stealing someone's identity by removing their language. And I wonder if, if architects are under almost attack from many different, uh, from many different angles, from developers, from, the, from uh, contractors. If we steal their language, do we steal their identity? Obviously, architects are taught this way in school. It's how they converse with each other. It's how they converse with various consultants. And I wonder if by eradicating that, we will uh, undermine what they do for a living. I think that's an interesting point, but I'd, rather, I'd turn it on, a, on its head. I don't think necessarily it's a question of stealing architects' language. I think part of the reason, in my opinion, why architects talk like this increasingly now is because there is a, a greater perceived threat from other um, individuals possibly within um, the industry. Um, there was a time when the architect was the master builder. He ruled everything he surveyed. He um, controlled the drafts room, the construction site. But the, there's been an erosion in the power and the um, influence of the architect across the design team. You have design and build now. You have contractors who call the shots. You have BIM even, which promises democ to democratize design, but potentially take away things that used to be the sole preserve of the architect into other members of the consultant team. So I take the point about stealing language being um, some, a, reason, a possible reason why architects um, well, if we did steal the language, then it would take away their identity. But I do think language has been used as a kind of defensive barrier against all these potential incursions in the industry, which didn't used to exist. And at least they can take refuge in language in terms of this is one way in which we speak. This is something that can't be value engineered. It can't be taken over by a contractor. It can't be um, er eroded from the kind of pro procurement process. Language is ours. And I think that's one reason possibly why in recent times, with all these potential threats if you like, or opportunities, depending on who's looking at it, there's, there's been a, um, a, a willingness to use language as something that defines architects' identity. I would take the opposite opinion for the sake of a debate, and because I think it's true, actually. Um, so if I'm going to make a political analogy, I think that's building a wall. And I think if you use language that most people can understand, then you're building a bridge. And, and that's messed up, that you, you think that the way to preserve the... Not that you think that, but um, that the way to keep your power or your influence as an architect is to be more and more exclusive and less and less accessible seems crazy to me. And I think uh, that the medical thing is quite an interesting analogy, and I thought the sort of... Twitter spat that I understand was one of part of the inspiration for this talk, um, which I think was mostly between Tom Dykoff and Sam Jacob. Um, somebody made this, this surgery analogy. And the idea that medics don't use a different language when they're talking to their patients as they do when they're talking to each other 
like, have you ever been in a hospital? Have you ever overheard a conversation? Have you ever looked at your medical notes and tried to understand what they actually say compared with what the person says to you in per when you're there? Of course, they're using a different language. They're not doing the same thing. They're toning it down, trying to make it as explicable as possible to you as they can. My dad is a molecular biologist, and there's nothing that he likes more than tripping up a doctor by knowing more about the cellular processes that the medicines that they're giving him are being affected by or are affecting. Because they like, oh, God, now I'm talking to somebody who I don't know where you are. Like, who are you? Are you a doctor or what? And, and that's fun. But the idea that other professions don't do that is crazy. Medics clearly have whole structures by which they make themselves be able to communicate well with wider audiences. And I think that architecture risks becoming very irrelevant. And if we use the language that we have in the right way to still communicate complex ideas, then we can prove our relevance. And that's what we don't do. There's nothing on TV, nothing in regular press that loads of people read. I mean, we're just retreating, retreating, retreating. But what we do is make the entire world that everyone lives in. I mean, it's mental. Uh, coming back there. Well, it's all getting a bit tautological for me now. Um, I think there's an interesting dialectic. Maybe it's about power. You used the word dialectic. Yeah. And tautological. <laughs> um, turn things on its head a little bit. I think when you are getting into the crux of very complex issues to do with architecture, whether it's about the city, the politics, or the way that you might engage either academically or either at a level of, of, of political manipulation over the state or over the public realm, um, it would, you, we could, you could do with some of the, 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 the clever words, the, the, the important words that kind of can um, um, spark off the real meaning about what the real problems are. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, um, and I'm kind of thinking off the top of my head, so I'm kind of um, 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 perhaps um, got a bit of a paradigm going on or something. Uh, tectonic vernacular kind of problem you can get lost in the words, you can get lost in the meanings, but what I mean is that you can, you can at times use those words to decipher very complex situations to get a handle on everything from buy to lets, affordable housing, public space, and so on, when it's talked about in the ways that allow you to understand it from a post-Marxist perspective or a perspective that's about criticizing capital. Then I think you're getting into maybe not architectural stuff, but maybe sociolo sociology or geogra geographical kind of meanings and, and influences that it can have on architecture, which I think architects should engage with, and not just on um, talking to the public and telling them how, um, explaining to them what the building is about and talking to builders and explaining what a detail is about and using plain English all the time. I think you, you architects still need to be well read. I think that's what I'm saying. I made, I, all up. I made all that up. I'm trying to pretend I'm Paddy Lynch. 
everybody needs to be well read. Um, question is what they do with their reading. Um, can I just raise another issue, which is the nub of the problem here, the fact that to an extent architects are talking in a second language. Um, we're all born, we're all able to talk. Um, but to me, the language of architecture is not through words. The language of architecture is, for instance, through drawing. And the most eloquent thing I've ever seen is an architect saying, well, you could do this. Ching, 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 ching. Oh, yes, I, now I understand that because you've just, you just described to me in lines on a bit of paper, that's what I could do with this space here. And I've had that happen to me and it's immediately crystallized something in my mind. I've understood perfectly. I know only you, the architect, could have done that and explained that in that way to me so simply, so concisely, so clearly. Um, that's perfect, and this is why, obviously, I'm so keen on the idea of drawings, and we sort of, you know, publish them as much as we possibly can. Um, the second language, maybe, should you bother, really, with um, trying to write Finnegan's Wake, uh, when that's already been done, actually, and nobody can read that anyway. So, um, anyway, anyone else want to dive in on that before I go into a complete blether? Uh, Paul, is it your turn here? I think you have to be really careful about um, sort of diving in and say, on the one hand, um, architects should stick to drawing, stick to what they're good at, and they shouldn't speak because they're incapable of communicating ideas in a simple manner. I don't think any of that's true. I mean, there's tons of architecture on TV, actually, um, from the kind of the most banal, shall we call it found space of homes under the hammer, uh, to endless Kevin MacLeod architect explaining in uh, extremely simple language why he's worried about the project isn't going to finish on time. You can't get away from it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I think the real problem is that um, architects, for all sorts of reasons, I think Hugh's right. I think they do live double lives in a way, not just with double languages. For example, you take a, an architect like John Utram, a highly educated and highly sophisticated and, 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 and uh, intellectual uh, architect. And he's being asked to design a warehouse estate in West London. Now, what's going through his mind um, as, he as he includes at the client's expense some classical details at the top of the columns is that he's actually in the middle of a Trojan War. Uh, there are Greek triremes which will be represented there. His colour palette uh, has come from the world of classicism uh, and it's not really something that he's going to talk either to the client about or the planning committee or, or probably the users because he's actually undertaking simultaneously a completely practical uh, proposition uh, but he's putting his own architectural gloss on it because... That's what he does, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you ask him to describe the building in the terms in which he's envisaging it in his own mental mind, it'll be very, very different, and the complaint will be, well, that's archi-speak. Why all these historical references? It's just a warehouse. You're boring us, etc., etc., etc. And this is a problem for architects because, of course, they do have to use words to talk about what they're doing, at a banal level at the planning committee at the public consultation. They're not like artists and musicians. Barnett Newman famously said, aesthetics are to artists what ornithology is to birds. They don't have to worry. 
And there's a wonderful, um, Peter Murray will remember this, a Dennis Lasden story about Schubert, who was at a dinner party, and the hostess said at the end of the dinner, now, Herr Schubert, would you mind going over to the piano and playing uh, something for us, one of your latest compositions? He goes over and plays something wonderful. He finishes, everybody applauds. He comes back and sits down at the table, and the hostess said to him, but Herr Schubert, what does it mean? And Schubert gets up, goes back to the piano, and plays it again. Now, architects don't have that luxury because they will be told uh, they're being kind of, you know, elitist, and uh, why can't they speak in the language of the Daily Mirror and so on and so forth. I don't really see why they should. And in fact, the worst elements of Archie I don't think are very much different to the worst elements of... Uh, many other people who, I've got a, a list of these as synonyms, waffle, argo, jargon, gobbledygook, drivel, not forgetting gibberish, which is generally the world of PR and marketing. It's, it, it's ubiquitous on websites. It has nothing to do uh, with real language. But I do have a problem if we're supposed to say that we're not allowed to use the word palimpsest because most people don't know what it means. It's an ingenious word which you would need a couple of sentences otherwise to describe. That's why the English language is so wonderful. It just has the one. And I think you just have to be a bit careful about going from the undeniable fact that there is a lot of uh, jargon and argo and gibberish in the world of speak. You have to be jolly careful to move from that to saying that architects somehow have to explain everything in plain language because all they're really doing is fulfilling a client's brief and they're doing a plan of a section and then getting a contractor to make it really nicely. Well, I'm sorry, it's not like that because architecture at its highest level, it is an intellectual activity. It's not just about construction and therefore you expect the language uh, to be uh, of that order. So I'm kind of... I'm, agree I'm half agreeing with the premise of the evening that archi-speak in its worst forms is dreadful. But I think you have to be very careful not to sort of cast architects into the role of people who actually, be, if, they, if they can't express their ideas in simple language, then they're idiots uh, or incompetents. And I'm sure Patrick Lynch would have had something to say about this. We just shouldn't be frightened uh, about this. You know, if architecture is not an intellectual activity, it is nothing. John Utrum, who you mentioned there, of course, um, actually in the context of someone who wouldn't use that language uh, to the general public, uh, I noticed, uh, and it was also actually pretty good at coming up with stuff which people could get a grip on. I mean, I, the robot order, I think, was just a great invention of, um, of, of Utrum's and just described in two words the whole idea that he will invent a new order of classical architecture, which is basically just containing all the services. Um, but by coming up with a robot order, I think he just came up with one of the, you know, the great architectural um, phrases there. Now, I would admit that the general public might not necessarily know what he meant by the robot order, but the moment he pulled open a door and showed him all the pipes, then, of course, they would. Um, I had a question myself about another thing which Paul said there, which is, he's, he mentioned palimpsest. Now, this to me is nothing to do with the, um, or not necessarily, as much to do with the meaning of the word and, and the usefulness of the word. 
as merely the fact that the overuse of the word then, of course, then goes swerving off into, into cliché. So uh, on my magazine, uh, I tend to say, when they crop up in articles by contributors, certain words are banned. And the words which are banned would not include palimpsest at the moment, though I think it's just quivering on the edge of being banned. Um, but it would obviously include words like vision, vibrant. These are developer words which, you know, again, at a, at a time, at a certain moment, goodness knows how long ago, had a certain value and through overuse have now become meaningless because they're just overused. And so now I was interested to look, just before I came, I was looking at some developer websites. We all love developer websites. We all love the language of hoardings on building sites. We, we collect them, don't we? We put them up on social media and laugh about them. Um, and I noticed that um, someone was trying very hard not to use the word vibrant. And you can see the pain that they were going through not to use the word vibrant about this proposed new standard development of dense mid-rise houses. And they said, thriving. And I'm going, well, thriving's okay, but actually it can't be thriving until it's been built and occupied and stuff like that. You can't describe it in advance as being thriving. Uh, but then I thought about it, I thought, well, no, you can't describe it in advance as being vibrant either. So. Um, that notion of cliché brings us neatly onto the notion of PR, it seems to me, um, because uh, what are sort of uh, marketing people, if not dealers, in cliché? Um, I'm sure plenty of people here will disagree with that, uh, and uh, they vary enormously. And the best ones are excellent, and the worst ones are just unspeakably awful. There aren't very many good PR people. Would any PR person in the room care to um, defend PR language? Anyone care to speak for, speak for that? Like Rob over there, for instance? <laughs> well, I, I might not defend PR in the sense that I'm now concerned about... We, we put a message out there um, on Twitter, well, on the invite and on Twitter to say that our PR's dumbing down architects' ideas. And I am worried that in the quest to connect to the public, we're actually using developer speak and um, maybe subverting architects' ideas into uh, PR speak and therefore, by the time it comes out and the architect looks at it, they think, they, they feel disconnected to their own work via words, which I think is um, a worrying thing. So I would, I would argue and I would wonder if there was anyone in the audience who might debate this that PRs are actually uh, ruining architecture. Let's do that. Oh, no pressure. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this, so bear with me. Um, I, I would, I would um, defend the point that um, architects are very precious about their work and the way that it's portrayed and the trouble that you have <laughs> writing a press release um, in one type of language which the, the whole point, and no, no one really likes press releases, um, but the whole point is to be straightforward and to give the simplest information um, so that the journalist can then spin it into their own story and do what they want with it. Um, and architects can be very... Uh, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. Architects can be very precious. So 
they will use complicated words that don't really mean anything and they will describe their projects in certain ways and when you go back to them with simpler ways of saying things and trying to be more straightforward, they will change it back. Um, so I, 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 do, um, I do think it's, it's more difficult than maybe it sounds, but I'm, I'm not convinced that we're ruining architecture. I think that's quite, quite a strong statement <laughs> to make. Uh, who else wants to over there? Um, I'd also like to add that there's another, you can be a PR, um, like Lauren mentioned, where you're an external PR working for an architect, but some in London, but in Europe, it's quite a standard practice that architects have their own internal PR department. I used to work in one, so I should know. Um, we definitely had a list of weasel words uh, from our boss that we should not use. I can't remember any of them because thank God I didn't have to write any press releases during my 11 months there. Um, and the best thing is, frankly, if architects just do their own press releases, um, one of the partners at the firm I worked in was a very keen writer and he just wrote all his own stuff and we were told not to touch it. So if he's happy with it, I'm happy with it. Plus, he, he had an aspiration to be seen as a sort of public intellectual. So the, in my view, the language is always very understandable but smart. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of killing two birds with one stone, like somebody mentioned before, trying to target a special kind of audience. Um, so yeah, that's it. Hi. Hello. Um, okay, in the section of my work that has to deal with PR and marketing, obviously as an architecture critic, I can confirm a lot of marketing language is infuriating. It is the, I'm not making Gemini, but it, it can often be the lowest common denominator. It's very annoying. You can see it's cliches. It's, it, it, it can be annoying. But if you have that at one extreme, and then you have architectural doublespeak at the other extreme, I will take PR doublespeak every day over architectural doublespeak because at least the PRs are trying to connect with the public. They're doing it potentially maybe in a childish way. It cannot be in a, uh, not childish maybe a harsh word, but in an overly accessible way. But there's at least there's a core ambition of trying to connect with the public. And I think that's, the, that's, that's what's missing. I understand Paul Finch's point. I get it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't dumb down complex ideas. But what's wrong with conveying complex ideas in accessible and understandable language? The robot order, I get that. I think most people, if you explain what that meant to them, they'd be able to get it. It's a potentially complicated idea, but it doesn't have to be embalmed in complicated language. And architects used to do that really well. Um, less is more. People get what that means, less is more. Um, it, it doesn't, you can convey complex ideas using accessible language. It doesn't mean you're doing a disservice to the intellectual um, capacity or aptitude you use to create the idea. It just means that you're keeping the idea of communication foremost in your mind. And another final thing to say as well is, I think it actually takes a special skill and intellectualism to convey a complex idea in a simple way. It's really easy to get something complex and just present it as something um, indiscernible, really difficult to convey. But it takes another level, I think, of aptitude application, empathy, to get something really complicated, but disseminate it in a way which most people can understand. So I don't think we need to look at simple language as something that's bereft of intellectual capacity or thought. 
it's actually quite an intricate process to get to the stage whereby you've got something really complicated, really intricate and difficult, but you've been able to convey it to most people in a way that underst they understand. And I think for me, personally, as an artist and a critic, that is the triumph of using language, to be able to convey something complicated in a really simple way. Yeah. I was hoping to add a little bit to what the two issues that are being raised. I'm trying to get my head around about what's being said, and I think it's really interesting that we are talking about two things again at once, and I think that we need to clarify. One is the inside of the process of creating architecture. The other one is communicating and selling on the outside. Again, the confusion would be dangerous because some of the ideas of cre creating the design and the fact that they're very different parts of the brain engaged in ideation in, in utilizing it as a language of ideograms to communicate nascent design is very, very different from verbalizing architecture as a narrative, for example, or reading cultural ideas. And uh, as a teacher of architecture, I often try to help students give incomprehensible, mushy ideas, visual and verbal shape. It takes a long time, it's painful, it takes a lot of iteration. They cannot be clear, explicit about something that even their own brain has not connected between the verbal and visual activity. Now, the second thing you, what you said, I think is very, very important. I think as architects, we, we cut ourselves short because we're intelligent enough to speak different languages. We can speak prison slang on a building site and philosophy in, a, in an intellectual environment with surprising ease. And with regards to marketing, Salesmanship, it's a completely different set of skills. You use the word empathy. It takes a certain amount of emotional intelligence to connect to the buyer of your ideas. There's a very different conversation you're having with yourself, with your colleagues, with your teachers, with your collaborators when you're making the proposal, if we talk about design project, and a very different process of choosing and, and writing that pitch or creating that speech when you try to sell an idea. In order to sell an idea, you don't need to know what you have to say. You need to know what the person's looking to buy an idea has, a, what sort of problem do they have? What itch they have? What is going to scratch that itch? There's a completely different set of skills, different languages. I think we're intelligent enough to learn to do both well. We don't do both well yet. It, but I think that, again, I don't have a very intelligent uh, answer to these questions, but I do believe those are two separate problems. You raised an interesting point there, Maria. Keep the microphone for a moment, um, because in your teaching, you are saying that you are helping the students to crystallize their ideas, and that was both through their designs and through how they described their designs. And I find that fascinating. Because I have come across a similar thing. I went through a phase of thinking, you know, running a, a competition for, for, for drawings, for instance, that we're not interested. We, I said grandly, we're not, we're not interested in the project. All we're doing is the art of the drawing. And after a few years of doing, doing this, it was uh, borne in on me that uh, you can't have a good drawing unless you have a good project, essentially. Uh, the two very, very seldom separate. Do you find, therefore, as you hinted at there, that in order to design, in order to draw the thing, imagine the thing, you also have to be able to describe that thing in comprehensible words or you know, words which are at any rate comprehensible to your peer group? Does the language and the drawing, are they just the same thing? We talk about the language of architecture. What about language of speaking? Yeah, no, I, I, I 
again, it depends. And I try to customize my approach to the type of person. People have very different skills and strengths. There's some more verbal, there's some much more um, um, prone to use of analogy, metaphor, or visual description. I think it's important that in the long term, yes, both are extremely important. But depending on the phase of the project, oftentimes you have to allow a, a degree of subconscious synthesis to take place. You can't always demand a logical, linear explanation for something that miraculously synthesizing in a creative brain. And I'd like to, to leave a little bit of room for them, while they're not really fully coherent as to why and what it is, to follow it through. Now, there comes a time, soon enough, where they do need to be much more explicit about what it is, why it matters, and how they're going to develop it further. That's where the idea of methodology kicks in. Without design theory and methodology, you can't have a robust project, because then you're just indulging in sort of a, you know, uh, channeling, basically, your imag imaginative half-baked ideas. So, so language is very important, especially when it becomes something that has a long-term impact. Without a publication, without a public presentation, without a debate, your architectural idea will basically die within 48 hours. So in that sense, there's more maybe longevity to the idea is ensured by good language use. I don't know. I think you do know. <laughs> Over in the corner there. I think she probably does too. Oh, can I have a quick go? But is that all right? Um, I think you're absolutely right. This thing about internal ideation and being able to communicate amongst the profession and then external communication for whatever purpose. But we are not here tonight going, God, if only architects had more complicated language to make more complicated ideas. We can do that. We don't need to worry about that. The deficit is the communication either with its, about our ideas to... PRs and other architects, or the communication between the profession and the wider public, that's where there's a problem, and that's why that's what I'm focusing on. I'm absolutely not advocating that everything that we communicate should be done in the simplest possible language, and dumbing down makes my toes curl, because that's not what is being said. But if you look at the whole spectrum of communication that we have to deal with, and I think you're right that there is all of that, that the bits that we do really badly we don't bother ourselves about because it's only for everyone else. Like, that's okay, because they're stupid and they don't know, and we don't have to communicate about it. And I actually think that the fact that Grand Designs is all over the telly is the perfect example, because it's not really architecture. It's like expensive house porn. No one's talking about architecture there. We're just looking, like, oh, wow, look, they've got two million pounds. And so, like, all of those shows are like that. There is nothing de deeper or more critical or more insightful... <laughs> Nothing about the politics of making cities. All of that stuff, which is fascinating and affects everyone, and we don't talk about it because we don't try hard enough to, about complex ideas with language that can make it seem relevant, as relevant as it, as it is. And I think that's why this is the area of focus, is how do we talk to everybody? Not because we should always talk to everybody like they have no knowledge, but because that's the bit that we're shit at. So maybe the issue is communication and not language. Maybe, maybe it's fine to talk however we want to if we're speaking to a set audience, if we're speaking to other architects, but maybe it's an issue purely of communication. And I think no one's here, well, we've talked about the word palimpsest, but no one's seriously talking about ban in any words, but maybe it's just, <laughs> maybe he was, but maybe it's an issue of just being conscious of the audience and communicating to that audience in a way which they can understand. So maybe language isn't the culprit, it's how we communicate. I don't know.
uh, over here. Yeah, I, I just wanted to go back partly to something Paul mentioned about um, music and the other arts, actually, because, you know, those are... There's a, there's a couple of things. One is that architects are all too willing to try and explain themselves. And I understand why a musician doesn't necessarily have to or an artist doesn't have to because they're in control of their art form and they don't have to justify it to somebody else who's paying the bills necessarily. But it seems to me that there's a lack of sort of straightforward human sort of emotion or the idea of, of uh, fallibility or... Uh, it's all certainties with architectural language. It has to be this way and no other or it is very definitively set out that it's going to be that. What the great, great art, if architecture is to be seen as an art form, maybe it's... I mean, certainly it took me a long time through my education process to start actually not looking at architecture books and start looking at music lyrics, to start looking at film. And, I, you know, I've always felt that film particularly was uh, equatable to architecture in the sense of the number of people involved, that as a director you're not solely the master of your own destiny in terms of your vision. So is it just a simple thing of a lack of human sort of emotional common sense in the way we communicate, which I think other art forms... You know, you cannot understand Picasso, but you go and stand in front of Picasso and he can say something to you. Is it a, a desire to explain too much? Don't look at me and ask me that. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, Peter. Yes, I'd, I'd just like to talk about palimpsest for a moment. I, <laughs> I think it's a great word, and you shouldn't ignore it because it is accurate and it means something, and the fact that not everyone understands it's not a bad thing and I intend to use it to the point of cliché over the next uh, 12 months or so. So, um, And I, I think accuracy of language is very important, and I would like to apologise uh, a little bit for some of my comments about the AA, because um, I think where these things are considered, and I think there is an academic debate, which is very important. I think if you read um, uh, the late lamented AA files and uh, Thomas Weaver as an editor of that, I think that is a brilliant piece of uh, academic uh, study that uh, deserves reading. And uh, I also am a great fan of uh, Robin Middleton, who was a librarian at the AA for a long time, librarian at Cambridge, then at Columbia. And uh, he used to use the word gallimore which um, I really like and uh, intend to also use a lot of times. And I've noticed that the name Bernard Chumi has come up a number of times this evening as well. And I would blame him for some of the problems that we're talking about tonight. Entirely with you on Gallimorphy. Wonderful word. Um, I just have maybe two questions, uh, both of which were sort of touched upon by the other uh, speakers. I think one, I'd like to know uh, how far you think architects should be more, um, I suppose, didactic in the way they communicate to the public. So maybe using those big words, but also explaining themselves, so not being aloof or not being patronizing, um, and whether that's possible by saying, look, the robotic order is etc, 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 because I think we all understand it quite intuitively because of our education, but most people probably wouldn't. And secondly, we've heard a lot of um, uh, talk about approaching it from, you know, layman's terms and um, academic terms, you know, the speak. But I think, would, what's the kind of um, relation, I, I think, say, journalistic practice would be quite an 
um, useful bridge between those two because that is a way that is used to communicate um, you know, abstract ideas to larger masses without necessarily dumbing things down, I mean, in its best form. So just those two points, if anyone would like to talk well, about um, that. I can come back on that, but also Paul here wants to come in at this point, so. I think there's a big difference between talking about specific buildings, um, which is the world of PR and marketing, which, by the way, I don't have any problem with the, the language of that. You get the press release, it has information. And actually what those people do is about communicating to widest possible audiences. I don't think the language matters very much, actually, as far as that's concerned. And, you know, they sometimes come up with a brilliant phrase. Who would have imagined um, that retail-led urban regeneration project a generation ago, we'd have called it a shopping centre. Uh, but you can't do that anymore because, you know, commerce uh, is bad. Um, I think that the, the, one of the problems that architects have is what they're actually frightened of saying. And I've always thought that sometimes when they use the language um, at worst, the sort of debased language of kind of bad philosophy or bad sociology, um, they really shouldn't do it because they're not philosophers by and large. Just occasionally you get one. Rossi, okay, once in a generation, um, but they're really not. So they start using word like, like affect. I don't really know if they mean effect as a, as a verb or a noun, or they mean affect as used by social, and they get in a horrible mess, generally speaking, and they just shouldn't do it. However, when it comes to inspiration and ideas, let me give an example. Richard McCormack, designed, to me, one of the sweetest stations on the Jubilee Line, uh, which is at Southwark. And you come up into this wonderful chamber as you come up the escalator. What he never told the client was that the inspiration uh, for that dome shape and the acoustic uh, was a performance in his mind uh, of the magic flute. Now, no architect is going to say to a hard-bitten bunch of procurement specialists at Transport for London, my project's all about an opera. It's not going to happen. Any more than, and David Chipperfield has talked, I think, very passionately about this, most architects, when given the chance to build a cultural uh, building, you know, a gallery or a museum, their justification for doing it and why it's such a great project is actually because of the numbers that it's going to put on tourism in that city. The number of visitors. Margate will be transformed. And David's done quite a few of these. Wakefield will never be the same. And do you know what? He kind of hates it because the justification for doing a gallery or a concert hall has got nothing to do with tourist numbers. It has to do with the promotion of culture. So I think architects, up to a point, are on a bit of a back foot. And they either have to use, as it were, the prosaic language uh, of cost-benefit analysis to say why they're doing this thing and why it's really a good idea, or they have to go into a slightly hyperventilated uh, piece of hyperbole um, about why actually in urban theory 
and this is when they start using the words identified by Adrian Forty in his book, Words and Buildings. Now, he only found 18 that, that were interesting, but he missed out all the fun cliches. How many times have you heard an architect saying something is permeable because it's got a street in it? I mean, the whole history of the city is about permeability. Somebody claiming their project is permeable, it, should, it almost should disqualify them uh, from doing it because it's utterly meaningless. What is found space? Anyone building a building anywhere is working in found space. Don't get me started on poesis. Um, that business about not being able and not choosing to um, mention the magic flute to um, the hard hats at uh, Transport for London, unfortunately doesn't stop um, those architects who are doing the galleries um, from using just those analogies when it comes to their cultural buildings. Um, and I suppose we could mention the v and in Dundee in this, uh, in this regard. And I always think, well, if that really is um, the... Um, the coastline of Scotland and the cliffs of Scotland, then why don't you let gannets nest in it? As opposed to having little electric things going on all those slats which are actually trying to keep the birds out. Wouldn't it be great to have squawking colonies of gannets in the V&A Dundee? That'd be brilliant. Um, can I just ask the... No, no need to ask that, Peter, because obviously nobody has. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can I just ask our hosts here tonight how long you like the discussion to go on for before we just sort of lapse into a general mush of eating and drinking? Yeah, well, I think, I think we should wrap up in a few minutes. I'm going to pass it back on to Hugh, but I'm going to just squeeze one more in sure. just on the back of what Paul was saying. Um, there's an element of pretentiousness in a way, isn't there? Where, um, I think the, 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 there is perhaps, we call it jargon, but maybe it's the pretentious use of language that maybe puts a lot of the public off architecture. Um, maybe the public would be better even if we use complex words or complex um, explanations if it wasn't so pretentious. And on that note, I'm kind of wanting to sort of just highlight one thing that I love from an architectural critic called Jeff Kipnis many, 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 many years ago. Um, where I think he had 42 rules towards a new architecture, and I think number 27 was the skies delimit, which I thought was a good play in words. Pretentious, but good play in words. We pass over to you, Hugh. Um, can I just get one word in here before we go back to, to, to you, which is that, um, okay, we'll wrap up. I'll wrap up with um, the wisdom of uh, two Dennises. Um, we've already had mentioned this evening um, Dennis Lasden, of course. Uh, how can we not mention Dennis Lasden? But what Dennis Lasden was at pains to point out at one point was that every architect should have his or her own personal myth. And in a way, that's what Paul was saying there about uh, Richard McCormack and the, uh, and the Southwark uh, tube station. Keep it to yourself. You know, you've, you've got a thing which drives you on. In Lasden's case, it was a notion of um, striation, of landscape, of bones emerging from the earth, all of these things. No, no point talking about that with clients, uh, because um, some might understand it, but most wouldn't. Keep it to yourself. It's your personal myth. And very importantly, he said that it's a personal myth, because not only because of what informs your design, 
but it's because it's what makes you get up in the morning, because it's what makes you not only think, but know that you are a better architect than anybody else. Only you have got that personal myth. So that was why you have to have it. And the other Dennis is the late comedian Dennis Norden, um, who said something very similar in, when writing a sitcom. He said that you should just make sure that every character in your sitcom has got a secret in their personal life. You know what that secret is. Don't let on, but that will inform the structure of the whole comedy. Same thing. Anyway, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.